As we come to Mark chapter 3, beginning in the middle of the chapter, we find that Jesus is still in the early part of his ministry. But he's becoming very popular. That's one of the big dynamics going on in his ministry right now. No longer is he simply attracting crowds from the surrounding villages, but also from the surrounding regions. And hundreds, if not thousands of people, are following Jesus around because he's a remarkable teacher, but also because he can work remarkable miracles. The the sick are healed, the, the blind see, the deaf hear. Those who were possessed by demons have them cast out of them and they're set free. Remarkable works that Jesus does. So on the one hand, you have this tremendous fame and popularity that Jesus is attracting. On the other hand, you have increased opposition from Jesus. We saw this earlier in Mark chapter 3. If you want to take a look at verse 6 of the chapter, where it says, Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. The opposition against Jesus is no longer casual. It's determined. They're going to destroy Jesus. And actually, we're going to see that in the few verses that we'll cover this morning, these same scribes and Pharisees undoubtedly set in motion some of the process uh, that we're going to see winding up in this chapter. But it begins here at verse 20, with the multitude coming together, Mark 3.20. And the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. You get the scene, don't you? Jesus has come to a house. We find that from the end of verse 19. He's come to a house, a home. Maybe it was of somebody he knew, maybe of someone familiar. And he came there to eat a meal. The difficulty was was that the crowds were pressing upon Jesus uh, so greatly and with so much need that he didn't take the time or he didn't take the, the energy out to eat. There was not the space. There was not the time to sit down and have a proper meal with other people. In that day, just like our own, eating, especially together with family and friends, it was more than just eating food. It was a time of fellowship. It was a time of sharing. And Jesus was so pressed with the ministry to this multitude that he didn't have the time to take proper meals. So look at what the reaction was from his own. If you notice here, when his own people, this means his families and friends, verse 21, when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him. You understand what that means, don't you? They want to grab Jesus. They want to take him aside. Stop, Jesus. Don't go there anymore. We've got something that that you need to stop doing. You need to stop with this ministry. You, You need to do something else. You need to take a break. Why? Look at the end of verse 21. For they said, he is out of his mind. Do you understand that? Jesus' own family, his own friends, those who were close to him, they thought, at least at times, that he was out of his mind. Now, when I first read that, I said, no way. How could anybody look at the Son of God, Jesus, who taught such profound truths and did so much good and was such an a other-centered person, how could anybody look at this man and say, he's got to be out of his mind? I couldn't figure it out at first, but as I thought more about it, I said, you know, in a way it makes sense, their opinion here. You could see how they would lead up to this kind of thinking. 
I mean, first of all, Jesus was a, a successful carpenter. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us that he was successful, but I, I've got to believe that he was. You know, he made good things out of his carpenter shop. He didn't do shoddy work. He, he did good work, and good work always sells where? Well, I, I'm sure that Jesus was at least a, a modestly prosperous businessman. But all of a sudden, when he turned 30 years old, he shut down the business, and he went out to live the life of an itinerant preacher. That's strange. That made his family and friends go, I wonder what's going on with Jesus. Secondly, Jesus was severely threatened. He had political and religious leaders plotting against him, and they said, if you don't knock it off, we're going to kill you. You know what Jesus said? I'm not going to stop. I'm going to do what I'm doing. Now, do you see how his family and friends might be saying, we're concerned for you, Jesus. We don't want you to die. You've got to take care of yourself. Maybe you should back away from this ministry business. Even if you're going to keep doing it, let's keep it under wraps a little more. We think you're getting a little off balance here. Then we're told that huge crowds began to follow Jesus. Hundreds, if not thousands of people. And he came to a great status of fame and celebrity. And people know how that can change a person. And maybe they're thinking that Jesus is becoming in love with fame and celebrity and it's going to his head. Jesus shows spiritual power and ministry that he didn't seem to show earlier in his life. And then finally, I think that the, the thing that really sealed it for him or the, the things that made them say, we, we really believe that he's going off the deep end was when they saw the 12 disciples that he picked. Jesus picked from all these people, and he picks these 12, and, and the people go, listen, we know you're not thinking clearly. Did you look at these guys that you selected? So you put all this behind it, and then in the context of family, because it says here, when his own people, that probably refers to his family. Then when it comes to the fact that he's, look at it there in verse 20 and 21, missing meals with his family, that's it. That's the last straw. We can't take any more of this, Jesus, because look, the connection's very clear. Verse 20, so that they could not so much as eat bread, but when his own people heard about this, they went to lay hold of him. That's it, Jesus. Now we see you've become totally out of bounds. You've become a fanatic in the things that you're doing. You're giving so much time, so much attention into this ministry that you have. Well, you, you haven't even eaten a proper meal with us lately. That's it. You're crazy. I have to imagine that it hurt Jesus to hear that from his family. Oh, I suppose that any number of us hear insults and put-downs from a lot of different people, but it can really sting when it comes from your family. And we can almost understand why the scribes and the Pharisees and the political leaders in Jesus' day, we can almost understand why they hated him. Jesus attacked the status quo, and they had an interest in the status quo. It kind of makes sense. It doesn't excuse what they did, but we kind of understand it. No, but on the other hand, we can't understand at all why Jesus' family would call him crazy. Why Jesus would have to deal with that. Well, friends, it's the painful truth that the brothers of Jesus didn't believe in him until after his resurrection. And even during his earthly ministry, they, they prodded him. They didn't support him. They undercut him. And so what do you do? What do you do when you're in such a painful place like that? Maybe some of you, in your own walk with the Lord, you've had family look at you and say, you know what, I think they've gone off the deep end. 
You know, all things in moderation, after all, and, and it's good that you have a religious impulse and all, and it's wonderful that you want to be a, a, a person honoring to Jesus, but you went to church twice this week. That's getting a little bit extreme. <laughs> and look at you, you're, you're reading the Bible. You're not just watching television all the time, you, you're reading that book, and, and it, it seems a little out of balance, a little odd. Maybe you've been through that, where people think that you're crazy because you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, I think you can learn from Jesus' example here. What did Jesus do? Nothing. Look at it there. There's nothing that it says he did. All it says is that they said he's out of his mind. In other words, Jesus didn't get into a big, long debate. No, how dare you call me crazy? I'll prove to you that I'm not crazy. You know what? If people say that you're crazy, there's probably not a lot you can do to change their mind. That is, without compromising. Jesus could have said, you think I'm crazy? Okay, I'll give up the ministry. I'll stop preaching. I'll stop healing. I'll stop pouring my life into these 12 men. No, but that isn't what God wanted. You see, if somebody thinks you're crazy, there probably isn't much you can do about it without compromising. And so Jesus didn't do anything about it. He knew that the Spirit of God would work in them and among them, and he just moved on. Now, if it's bad enough to have your family say that you're crazy, look at the opposition that comes against him beginning at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. Ah, I want you to notice that phrase. They came down from Jerusalem. This undoubtedly describes an official delegation of experts from Jerusalem. In other words, they heard about this Jesus fellow, and they heard about the run-ins that he had had with the local religious officials. And so now an official delegation, maybe even from the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, has come to investigate Jesus. And you can just see him, can't you? You know, in their, in their flashy, pompous robes and in their very, you know, uh, upper crust kind of way. And they're looking around. They're going to judge this man, Jesus. We've heard about him. And so they listen to his teaching and they scribble and they take notes. Yes, yes. And they watch him as he does miracles, and they they take notes, yes, yes. And so they've come down, and they're examining the ministry of Jesus. And now, just like judges at the Olympics, they're going to hold up their scorecards right now. This is what we think of this man and his ministry. This is our official declaration. Did you see it there in verse 22? And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons he casts out demons. But you notice, they said two things about Jesus, right? First... He has Beelzebub. You say, well, I don't know what Beelzebub is. Is that a good thing or a bad thing to have Beelzebub? (laughs) Beelzebub was a slang word for the devil, for Satan himself. They're saying that Jesus is possessed by Satan. Now, in a way, it's a compliment, a very backhanded compliment. But you see, they didn't say that Jesus was just demon-possessed. No, they saw that he had such spiritual power and such authority, they said, you know what, he's not possessed by any mere run-of-the-mill demon. It must be Satan himself that possesses him. So they said, well, he's possessed by Satan himself. By the way, did you know that accusation came against Jesus many times? John 10, 20. He has a demon and he is mad. Why do you listen to him? John 8, 48. Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? John 7, 20, you have a demon, they said to Jesus. Over and over again, they said, Jesus, you're demon-possessed. Well, here they take it up a step further. They say he's possessed by Satan himself. 
That's the one thing they said. Did you know the second thing they accused him of? There in verse 22, they said, by the ruler of demons, by Satan in other words, by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. In other words, you aren't fighting against Satan, you're in league with him. That's where you get your power. You're a sorcerer. That's the accusation that came against Jesus. Now, I think this is interesting because I think you can see a cynical attempt by the religious leadership here to, first of all, before they can destroy Jesus as they have plotted to do, they have to brand him as a heretic, as a dangerous person. And so they send down this delegation to make the decision. And you know they had their minds made up before they ever saw Jesus, and now they come down with the official decision. Yes, he is crazy. Yes, he is possessed by Satan himself. And friends, it takes a very hard heart to look at the work of Jesus and to say, this is the work of Satan. We might excuse Jesus' family for misunderstanding him, but this shows a much worse spiritual condition, and Jesus is going to address their condition in verse 23, where it says, So he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. Brilliant reply. Jesus is trying to reason with his opponents. He says, guys, let me help you figure this out. Let's just apply a little logic to this. I'm casting out demons. How can you say I'm working for Satan? then Satan would be working against himself. You know that there's no civil war in Satan's kingdom. They're all unified beyond their devilish head, Satan himself. He goes, so Satan doesn't work against himself. There's no civil war in Satan's kingdom. It doesn't make sense. Do you see how Jesus very reasonably, very rationally trying to discuss this with them? And then he goes on and says, I'll tell you what I've come to do. Apart from being in league with Satan, look at this description here, verse 27. This is what Jesus came to do. Assuredly, he says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. I love that one verse parable about Jesus' ministry. Part of what he came to do. He said that there's a strong man out there, and who's the strong man in this little one-verse parable? It's Satan himself. And he has a house. And there are things in the house that he holds on to, that he has possession of. And Jesus has come to say, I'm going to take those things away from him. So what does he do? He comes up to the door, and I don't think he knocks. I think he kicks it in. And he says, I'm coming into this house, and you, strong man... I'm stronger than you are, and I'm going to bind you up, and I'm going to take the things that you've held on to, and I'm going to take them out of this house. Now, what do you think the things are that Satan holds on to that Jesus wants to rescue? Well, it's you and I, isn't it? It's us. Now, that leads us to a very pointed question. What are we doing in Satan's house to begin with? Well, there's a couple answers to that. Did you know, and again, I'm just sort of applying this one-verse parable. Did you know that kind of on the terms of this parable, we might say that we were born in Satan's house? Every one of us. We're born with a sinful nature. Oh, I know, you don't want to say it when you see the little baby, so beautiful. 
so pretty looking. You say, oh, it's beautiful. Look at the innocent little baby. Well, that baby seems very innocent. But do you know why that baby doesn't sin more evidently? Because it doesn't have the physical ability to do so. Listen, you've seen that baby cry for its bottle or for its mother, haven't you? And you know that if that baby had the capability, it would reach out and choke its mother until it got the milk that it wanted. <laughs> and yes, it's small. Yes, it, it can't sin as it, as it one day will. But, but because we're all children of Adam and Eve, we are born with a sinful nature. We're born in Satan's house. But that's not all. We weren't just born there. We also chose to live there. You know, you could walk out any time, but we choose to live there. Now, our residence in Satan's house is twofold. We're born there, and we choose to live there. And then one day, Jesus breaks down the door, and he says, I'm binding Satan, and who wants to come with me? Isn't that beautiful? You don't have to live under the domination of Satan. Not even in your life as a whole, but either in little areas of your life. Jesus Christ has come to bind Satan and to say, if you want to be free, come with me. Come. There's not a single area of your life that Jesus isn't stronger than Satan in. You just have to let him work his power in that area of your life. And that's the beautiful invitation that he gives to us. Here he is. He's the man stronger than the strong man. And he can come and set us free from any area of, of, of demonic oppression. Now, look at what Jesus continues on here in verse 28. He, he's reasoned with his opponents. Now he's going to warn them. I, I believe that as Jesus reasoned with them, as he tried to explain it to them, he could see that they weren't receiving it at all. He could see that they were becoming more hard in their hearts towards him. So now in verse 28, he gives this warning. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Because they said he has an unclean spirit. Do you understand what's going on here? They accused Jesus of being satanically possessed. They attributed his works to the work of the devil. And Jesus said, I can look at you men and see that you are so hard of heart that you are in danger of committing an unforgivable sin. A sin that will carry you down for eternity. Now, we can be assured that these men Jesus spoke to had not yet committed this unforgivable sin. Why can we be sure of that? Because Jesus warns them against them. Now, if a person is has committed an unforgivable sin, there's nothing you can say to them. There's no warning needed. There's nothing you can do. They've committed that sin. That's all it is. But if you warn somebody against it, it means they haven't committed it yet, but they may be treading dangerously close to committing that sin. So Jesus warns them. You, you can almost see the, the, the tears well up in his eyes saying, man, you're very close to this. You look at my life. You look at my ministry. You attribute this to the devil. It shows that you are in such a hardened condition that you're close to what we call the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. 
And you know what blasphemy is, isn't it? It's, it's to speak against, it's to reject, it's to profane God. But specifically, he says, it's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Why should that be the unforgivable sin? This troubles many people. Many people look at horrific criminals, murderers, torturers, and they say, shouldn't that be the unforgivable sin? Why would blasphemy of the Holy Spirit be the unforgivable sin? What is it, that the Holy Spirit has such short feelings that if you offend him that there's no escape? No, no, we need to understand what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is in light of what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is. Jesus said that the work of the Holy Spirit would be to testify of him and that he would come to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. What the Holy Spirit does is he comes to our lives and he does many things, but first and foremost, he speaks to us about Jesus. He tells us the truth about who Jesus is. Now, these men obviously were not in touch with the truth about who Jesus was. And they were becoming so hardened in it, they were pushing away the testimony of the Holy Spirit. They were rejecting what they were saying. It's as if they looked at the Holy Spirit and they said, I know what you're telling me about Jesus, but I don't want any of it. Get away from me. Now, friends, when that becomes not just an occasion but a settled condition of heart, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You see, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit can't be forgiven, not because it's too hard for God to forgive that sin. You know, it's not like, well, this is a rock so heavy, God can't lift it. No! No, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven because it doesn't want forgiveness. It's pushing God away. It says, don't tell me about Jesus, Holy Spirit. Don't tell me about what he did for me and how my sins can be forgiven. I don't want to hear it. And Jesus says, that's the sin that can't be forgiven. That's the sin that's going to drag people down to hell. On the one hand, this is a very sober warning. Friends, do you see how serious it is that we do not reject Jesus Christ, and what the Holy Spirit tells us about him. The Holy Spirit tells us that Jesus is God. Don't reject that. The Holy Spirit tells us that Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sins. Don't reject that. The Holy Spirit says that we should surrender our lives and live for him. Don't reject that. Because when you reject it, it's like a callus builds up over your heart, and your heart becomes more and more hard. And if you settle in that hardness of heart and no longer listen to the Holy Spirit, there's no hope for you. It's a very serious thing to reject the testimony of who the Holy Spirit is. On the other hand, it's a very encouraging word that's given to us here. Because we're told, verse 28, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, except for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In other words, That sin in your life that you thought was unforgivable, it's not. Many of you, maybe you you haven't put it in these terms in your mind before, but you thought that you have committed the unforgivable sin. Maybe in your life before there was a time when you were very promiscuous and you think that's unforgivable before God and you go around with this stain on your soul. 
God can forgive you. That's not the unforgivable sin. Or maybe there was some kind of drug or alcohol abuse, or maybe there was violence in your past, or some other kind of shameful, degrading thing in your life, and it's left, as I've said, a shadow or a stain over your soul, and for some reason you just can't let it go. You wonder, can God really forgive that? Am I really, as we sang this morning, white as snow? Friend, you are, because those sins can be forgiven you. Isn't that beautiful? The one sin that can't be forgiven is the sin that pushes Jesus away and says, I don't want your forgiveness. So, how do we avoid blaspheming the Holy Spirit? You receive the work of Jesus right now, today. Automatic guarantee. Matter of fact, I'll venture forth to say that if you are concerned whether or not you have committed the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you have not committed it. Because a person who has truly blasphemed the Holy Spirit wouldn't care. What would they care? They don't want God's forgiveness. Like it's going to hurt them that they don't have it? No, they don't want them. Or might I say, they don't want it on God's terms. Oh, many people would love to live any way they please and not give their life to Christ, but have God forgive their sins. Oh, sure, everybody wants that deal. No, but it's not just receiving God's forgiveness. It's receiving it on his terms, which means a surrender of our life to Jesus Christ. So friends, if if you're concerned about it, I tell you right now, you haven't committed it, but you may be close. So surrender your life to Jesus Christ today. Settle the issue. Now there is another case of, of people who have given their life to Christ, but somehow Satan, and you know, he knows the scriptures. He knows them very well. They know how to take this verse and, and somehow apply it to themselves. And I've had people speak to me in utter desperation Pastor, I believe that I've committed the unpardonable sin. I think I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I know I'm going to hell. I come to them and I assure them, no, that isn't the case. But if you have doubts about where your soul stands with God, let's get it right right now. But I assure them it isn't the case. If you want forgiveness, if you want to give your life to Christ, then it shows you haven't committed that sin. Charles Spurgeon told a story once about a young man who came to him very distraught, because he believed that the night before, probably in his sleep, he thought he committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And he woke up just overwhelmed by this sense of being rejected by God, and I'm going to hell, and it's one of those, you know, go to hell, go straight to hell, do not pass go, do not collect $200, you're, you're going, there's no two ways about it. And this man was so distraught, he came to Spurgeon, and he said, I've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to hell. Spurgeon answered, and he said, well... Let's take that as the truth. Let's say that you are going to hell. What would you do there? And the man thought for a moment and he said, I'd start a prayer meeting there. (laughs) Spurgeon just laughed and he said, See, your, your heart is turned to the things of God, not to the things of the devil. You've been beaten over the head with this stick. You've you've had Satan twist the scriptures and try to wrongly apply something to your life. You don't have to fear that you've committed the unpardonable sin. Go and walk with the Lord. Now in our final little passage this morning, verse 31 through the end of the chapter, Jesus is going to tell us a little more about what it is to walk with him. Interesting little scene here, verse 31. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. Now, if you're Jesus, that concerns you a little bit, right? 
What were they saying the last time they saw you? You're nuts. We need to lock you up or at least give you a rest for a few days. You're going through a breakdown or something. Come on, let's, let's call it off for a while, Jesus. So now Jesus hears, hey, your mom and your brothers are outside. They're waiting. They want you to come to them. Verse 32, and a multitude was sitting around him. And, he said, and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about them and said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. You know, we're all used to granting special favors to family. It's just the way it is. I mean, my father was a highway patrolman before he retired. And so I got special little perks from that. When I was little, I'd go along with him in the squad car every so often, and we'd go driving around, and, you know, he'd get the car going up to a very high speed, going 100 miles or more. And, wow, it was great fun out on some deserted road. And then as you get older and you start to drive, it's nice having your father be a highway patrolman. <laughs> Not that it gets you out of every ticket, unfortunately, but it's gotten me out of a few. You know, it's just subtly right on the back of your license, you know, in case of emergency, notify Richard Guzik, California Highway Patrol, and then it had his badge number on there. And, you know, it got me out of a ticket or two. There's little pluses to having that in your family. It's just, it's just you know, family gets special privileges, right? Wouldn't you love to have that kind of special privileges relationship with Jesus? You know, you're, you're special. You can have it. How? Look at it there, verse 35. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. You can have that special privilege relationship. And believe me, there's special benefits that Jesus kicks out to his family. You can have it. What do you need to do? Do the will of God. That's all. I say that's all, but it's not so simple, right? I wish we could all just stand up and all raise our hands and say, we vow from this day forward that we will always do the will of God. It's not that simple, is it? But let me tell you how it begins. Jesus explained this for us in the Gospel of John. One day some people came to him and said, Jesus, what should we do if we want to do the works of God? And Jesus said, if you want to do the works of God, believe on him whom he sent. In other words, believe on Jesus. Believe on me, Jesus said. The foundation for doing God's will in your life is not willpower. It's not making a decision that you're going to do it. Although those things are involved. But they're not the foundation. The foundation is a personal relationship of love and trust with Jesus. Love is the key. Your love for Jesus. In other words, if you love somebody, you want to please them. If you love somebody, you want to do their will. It's that simple. So friends, I think we should leave here this morning with a new determination to do the will of God. But it needs to be built on a foundation of a real, genuine, passionate love for Jesus. If you have that love for Jesus, I know right now you're saying in your heart, I want more of it. If you don't have that love for Jesus, maybe honestly you don't. 
Won't you pray this morning and ask God to give it to you? That's a very non-threatening prayer, isn't it? I mean, even if you don't even believe in God this morning, what possible harm could there be in you saying, God, if you're there, give me a love for Jesus. And you know what? He'll answer that prayer. And you'll know what it's like to be one of Jesus' special, close, favored people. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to do that work. Father, I pray that you would move upon every heart here this morning. And we don't want to be like the people who misunderstood Jesus and called him crazy. Or the people who were against Jesus and said he was possessed by Satan. No, Lord, we want to be those people who have a special, close relationship with Jesus and do his will. Lord, I pray that you'd help us this morning to come into that real love relationship with you. If we love you, Lord, we're not going to turn against you. We're not going to want to hurt you. So help us, God. I pray for every heart this morning that does love you. I pray that you'd help them to love you more. Father, we pray also for hearts here this morning that honestly, without criticism or condemnation, we just simply say, Lord, that they, that they don't love you. Lord, I pray that you'd help them to, to come before you and, and honestly pray and ask now that you would give them a love for Jesus, a true love, a love that works its way out in the will. Lord, help me to love Jesus more. Help every one of us to grow in our love and devotion to our Savior. We pray this this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.